did this ourselves. They're coming. It can't be. Where is everyone? Hello, survivors. Makeshift here with the very first episode of the Apocalypse Postcast for 2022. Or 2020 Take 3. 2020 Version 3. What surprises do we have coming for us this year? I'm sure all of you want to know. I have no idea. But I will say, it's going to keep getting better. Or worse. It's going to keep changing. And we're going to keep adapting because that's what we do. We are the planet's alpha predator. Because we are the most able to adapt. You, my friend, are an apex predator. Unless you're a vegetarian. In which case, you just dominate them plants. But uh, what I'm trying to say is we're going to continue to adapt. We're going to continue to grow. We're going to get smarter. We're going to get better. We're going to have better science. And um, if the end of the world does happen in 2022, you're going to be ready. Why? Because you listen to this show. Actually, listening to this show has no impact on your ability to survive. This is a nerd show where we talk about all things post-apocalyptic culture. <laughs> But we do talk about some real-world scenarios, too. And uh, that's what today's guest is going to bring up. Um, i got a few more things to talk about, but I can't wait to introduce you. His name is Andy the Elf, and he is a wonderful woodland creature. He is a forest elf who just absolutely knows how to survive on the land. He knows what to look for. He knows his plants. He knows uh, what's poisonous and what's not. He knows about what trees you're going to want to be near, what area of the... Uh, country if you're in the United States uh, although this applies anywhere he knows where to live where not to live and if you, even if you get stuck in like a fallout New Vegas scenario uh, he's pretty confident that he could survive it and I think you could too I'm just gonna kind of ramble here for another minute before we bring him in because uh, it's the new year I'm really excited the show's doing well the numbers continue to grow I and I have been hard at work to put together the first true first full episode of the legends of wasteland city that is the narrative version of this show that's going to be coming out really soon um probably in the next month or so we'll get it started and then it's going to be an anthology so i think what's going to happen is once we start it it's going to keep going it'll be week after week of the anthology until that story's done and then i'll go back to the normal format for the in-betweeners We'll just, we'll bring in guests. I'll talk about shows and movies and stuff. And then when the next part is ready, we'll go into that. That's my hope anyway. We'll see how it goes. But um, I'm really excited about it. I just sent over the scripts to the voice actors who are gonna be playing a few of the characters. And just to get you guys hyped up on it a little bit, um, this is going to be the Schofield's Drifters. They have a six or seven part, I forget exactly right now. It's a, it's a longer story involving many characters. In that little teaser I put out at the end of 2021, you guys heard a scene with Doc Schofield and Digits. Now these are two real people who created characters for Wasteland Weekend. And along the way, they've been building out their backstories and that has taken them down this path of actually writing out some of these historical stories so that they have that backstory to add to their character when they're at Wasteland Weekend. Now, it doesn't mean that all this stuff's happening at Wasteland Weekend, but but this is how their relationships with other characters have been built. Their contractors, the 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 other the other tribes that they have deals with or or um, bad history with that kind of stuff. So, a lot of tribes have done this, and that's where I want this show to go: is to kind of like 
to kind of the theatricize, the theaterize, to to actualize. It's not actual, but yeah, we'll call it that. To just kind of bring alive some of these stories that have been written out over the years. So we're gonna start with that, the Schofield's Drifter story. I have a one-part story from Rabbit Asylum that we're gonna do. That one's really fun. And I've been writing an original story involving the Dukes of the Nuke that is currently at uh, seven chapters, eight chapters, something like that. So we're gonna get that going too. But I don't wanna give up on, on the show as it is either. So we're gonna keep peppering things in along the way. We're just adding to it. We're not changing the show because a couple people were like, are you gonna change the format completely? I was like, no, 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 no. It's just adding to it. There's gonna be just all new stuff. Um, what else? The Wasteland Weekend event maps have done really great. Uh, I'm super excited about it. I ordered a lot of them and uh, I think I've sold over a hundred already, which is kind of cool, a little unexpected, but amazing, but I still have some. And so uh, starting, let's see, you guys listening to this on Thursday, uh, the map's on sale, boom. Uh, and it's actually on sale starting Monday, MLK day. We'll do an MLK sale because why not? It's a holiday, uh, I've got maps and you guys need them. So here's your deal. Uh, so I'm, I'm taking them 25% off, 25? Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, 25% off because right now they're 20 bucks. Um, but with the sale, they're 16 and all you gotta do is pay some shipping and they'll come out to you. Uh, what's really cool about the maps is uh, the whole event is on there, and I know that not the whole, whole, whole event because some of the photos that I got from the drone were actually on Thursday when not everyone was there yet. A little unfortunate, but it's something I can correct for future. But yeah, you can see your camp, you can see your tribe, you can see your block from above, kind of map it out. Uh, and I think it's really cool. I think it'll be a cool reference point for the future too, because I know with, with the Dukes of the Nuke, we almost always will reference one of these overhead photos that I get almost every year, just to help us with the layout of our camp and how things fit and, and the actual size of things. So that's been a great reference for us. And um, I got a feeling that Wasteland Weekend itself is probably gonna use this map at some point to help out. Because, you know, if you look at like Google Earth, you only see the desert. There's you, the chances of them actually firing off those shots while the event's taking place is really slim. However, uh, this is the way Wasteland Weekend actually was in a moment of time in 2021 so yeah if you're thinking about it pick it up uh it's at the apocalypsepost.square.site i believe uh i will link that in the show notes below and then just find the map you'll see the sale all over it for this week you know if you're listening to this later it's probably not going to be on sale uh so the, you know the, the store moves in real time if i sell out of something i don't always replace it because i get bored and i want to try new things anytime you guys buy something from the shop it is a huge help for me producing the show not only does it help me to fund it uh and put aside the time to actually record and edit and and upload and share and find guests and find and research and all that kind of stuff um, but it also just is a huge encouragement to me every time, you know, someone does a sale or signs up on the Patreon. Um, it's just really inspiring. So I thank you guys so much for that. Um, also, uh, I have not gotten into it, but today on Netflix, I think, um, The Colony, which is a German, it's a European show. It's a European movie, but it's in English. Uh, so you don't have to deal with subtitles or anything, but it's a post-apocalypse. Uh, evidently, uh, Earth was ravaged by famine and pandemic and all sorts of stuff, and the elite left on a spaceship, uh, and they sent back this one ship to go see if, if uh, oh, while they're up on their escape ship, 
for some reason they can't reproduce anymore. And so they send someone back to Earth to see if they can reproduce. Um, I don't know all the details yet, but here's what's crazy, guys. When I first got into filmmaking, I made this web series called Alpha Planet. Guess what? It was post-apocalyptic uh, and, a, and a little bit uh, sci-fi as well, but it had a very similar theme. Mine was... The earth was ravaged and everybody left. The entire population, which was diminished at that point, left on an ARC spaceship. So we're talking, you know, maybe maybe a million people that were left are all on this ARC spaceship and they're trying to find another planet. And while they're like gallivanting through the um, universe, they send out like probes to see if there's if certain planets that they happen to be nearby are inhabitable if the probe comes back with any kind of positive idea then they'll send a manned crew to go check things out and so eventually they're running out of planets and the probes that they're sending back to earth are looking kind of positive and so they sent back a single uh mission which they lost communication with and alpha planet picks up where the second mission is just about reaching earth Anyway, the parallels to this movie, Colony, are a lot. I'm not like I'm trying to say that they stole my idea, because I know they didn't, and besides the fact that Alpha Planet was not really all that original anyway, I took a ton of inspiration from Mad Max and Star Trek and Star Wars and all sorts of stuff, um, but it's just, it, it's actually kind of cool, because I made Alpha Planet, oh shoot, almost 15 years ago now? And um, I'm, I'm not a, I'm not an incredible writer. I don't know. It's just kind of cool because like, all right, I had an idea there. There was something going on. Anyway, I'm going to take it as a compliment that Alpha Planet is really awesome. And you guys should go find it. It's actually on YouTube. Just look up Alpha Planet. Bear with me because it's early makeshift work. The, the actors are stellar, but the camera work is meh and the sound is meh. And uh, the script, I think the script's okay. It could work. If, if you put it all together into like a pilot, I think there's something there. It needs to be workshopped. Hopefully I would do it better today. Anyway, check out The Colony. I'm gonna try to watch it this week and I'll, I'll let you guys know what I think. Um, and then next week's episode, I'm gonna try to do a nice little review on Station Eleven. I love this show. So tune in next week. But that's it. Okay, anyway, I've, I've rambled on more than enough. I want to get to the show. This is, it's gonna be a fun episode. Andy is uh, very knowledgeable and he's kind of quirky and I think you guys are gonna love the hell out of it. And um, I'm just gonna get right into it. Get right into it 10 minutes later, yeah. Good job, makeshift. Uh, anyway, here we go, guys. There was a time in the long before when you could go down to your local supermarket and get yourself a week's worth of fresh veg, milk, eggs, and my favorite, meat. That kind of eating's tough to find out here in the wasteland, but here at Dead Raider Jerky, we're changing that. We got so much fresh meat, we don't even know what to do with it anymore. Ever since we started killing raiders on site, they keep showing up too, talking about wanting our stuff, waving around guns like they're even loaded. <laughs> Well, Wastelanders, we take pride in bringing you the freshest, best-tasting protein you can feel good about. Dead Raider Jerky. Fuck it. Let's eat the bastards. Fuck it. Let's eat the bastards t-shirts. Now available in the Apocalypse Outpost at theapocalypsepost.square.site. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
All right, guys. Well, my guest today is a huge advocate for permaculture. He goes on plant walks, teaching people about all the foods that you can find in the world, along with like natural medicines and all sorts of different stuff that we're going to find out all about. And he's got this uh, term on his resume called eco-encouragement. We're going to find out what that means. I discovered him through a recent event I was so lucky to get an invite to. This was actually right after Wasteland Weekend 2021. On my way back from California, I stopped at my buddy's land just a little bit west of Nashville for an event called Food Forest Adventure. And uh, this man was co-hosting and helping to teach a whole lot of classes. So um, guys, welcome to the show. One of my most unique guests so far, his name is Andy the Elf. Hey, Andy, how are you? Hey, greetings. Great to be here with you. I'm so glad to have you. And um, yeah, I'm. Uh, thanks so much for coming on. Yeah, I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So, Excited uh, to Excited to see what we talk about here, and there's so much. Yeah, me too. (laughs) So, why don't you start by just uh, telling everybody a little bit about yourself. Sure. Um, So, I've been doing plant walks, edible medicinal plant walks, since about 2001. I had just finished doing some herbal school programs and education, um... 2001, when the towers came down, I was out in a field digging echinacea roots. Um, So that's, you know, a time period that really kind of shifted things into a different focus for me. Um, Prior to that, I had been, you know, a guy that climbed up trees so that they wouldn't get cut down if they were like 900,000 year old trees. Yeah. And supported efforts with things like that. And went to a lot of protests where I found myself saying, no, this, no, that. <laughs> and, you know, coming across permaculture and, you know, these other ways of being that I could say yes to, I wanted to be able to share that with people and teach that in any way I could. And yeah, it's, it's been part of my, my journey here. That's awesome. That's in a nutshell. And so, all right. So you kind of started as a, um, what am I trying to say here? Uh, not, I don't want to use the word tree hugger, a conservationalist, but it sounds like you probably hug, hugged a lot of trees along the way. Yeah, I've hugged trees. I've learned how to talk with them. Um, over time, it's interesting. I, I mean, I operate a chainsaw. I have since <laughs> I was a kid. I remember doing chainsaw carving in high school. The guy had me carve a... Um, uh, he asked me to do a chief's head out of a stump in his yard, and I remember doing that. I don't remember when I first picked up a chainsaw. So it's it's an interesting relationship of hugging trees, but also knowing when to integrate as a human with them and use them for wood and materials, because I definitely value and appreciate my hands touching a piece of wood much more than a piece of plastic. Um <laughs> So different things like that, you know, there's like just, you know, learning that integration. That's a big part of that is my my own personal study and sharing that as I've studied it and observed it, the human interaction in nature, as opposed to oftentimes a scientist or a biologist will observe nature through a lens or in a Petri dish or through an aquarium or a glass window as opposed to putting themselves into it 
so that's you know a big part of what I like studying and involving myself in is how do we weave ourselves back into nature and being part of it and awaken that nature and conserving you know using that word conserving the nature in us um, yeah well it's it's really interesting that you mention um not just you know trying to save trees where where necessary but also using the chainsaw because that turns just uh, saving them for the sake of saving them into more of a stewardship with nature where we're right. helping nature to to you know be healthy not just making sure every tree stands up does that make sense right definitely yeah. i think i think a good example of that is uh observation i had up in the northern boreal forests the people who live there have forests that go through about 20 year cycles and then they'll come through and clear cut a 20 year cycle forest and in those forests there's all kinds of animals and fungal activity and multiple diverse species and what they're doing when they harvest them at 20 years is using it to make the toilet paper for our nation, the newspaper for our nation, you know, they're using it to make all the paper products that we use. And now we have this like idea that other things like hemp, you know, I love the hemp plant, but if you plant a field of hemp, you're going to have a monocrop that you come and harvest every year. And that sounds more sustainable, but these people in the boreal forests are concerned about losing their ecosystems of these 20 year forest cycles to people wanting to clear them down, never let them grow back again and having a hemp forest, you know, like that just gets chopped down every year. So you're, oh. the animals will lose their, their migratory places they can go. Cause I mean, it's not like they're clearing the whole entire boreal forest every year. Right. There's, you know, these movements of things. And so it's, it's interesting, you know, as, you know, big, the big machine of the world, like gets into our minds, what these certain ideas are. It's nice to take a little closer look and see what some of the ramifications of these things will be to the people on the ground in the places there. That is really interesting because, all right. So I, I know that when I was a kid, uh, it was all about save the trees, save the trees, which meant not using paper bags anymore at the grocery store. And so we all switched to plastic. Meanwhile, <laughs> meanwhile, now we're kind of thinking the opposite way where, you know, trees are actually, we can regrow forests in the, the in these like 20 year cycles just here in the United States um, or, or anywhere. And the, those trees are actually more sustainable than adding all these plastics to the world and that kind of thing. So they right. kind of tricked yeah. us on that one, didn't they? Yeah, it's a, you know, it's a mind game. <laughs> it sure is. Um, so you're going to be able to explain this better than better than me. Can you tell me what that food forest adventure was all about? The one where we met? Well, it was exactly that idea, you know, bringing people integrated into nature, finding their natural selves. I watched people at the beginning of that class come as regular humans. And by the end of the class the end of the weekend there i watched them you know walking around looking like forest giants and elves and fairies and you know just wakening their more natural selves and that creates like a sense of a whimsical magicness within themselves as well um putting moss you know on their shoulders and 
all kinds <laughs> of things like that. Um, but a big part of it was integrating with the forest, being able to observe and um, see how many different resources, how many different connections there are between different elements of the forest. You know, not always being human-centered, like this tree is good for us because it produces aspirin, or this tree is good <laughs> for us because it helps us digest, or this plant root helps boost our immune system. You know, it's more of looking at like, yeah, that's there, but this tree is also the home to this certain butterfly, and it's the only place that it can do that, and the trees that grow above it that drop acorns producing, you know, thousands of calories trickling down through the ecosystem there from squirrels to, you know, the worms that are eating the ones that are rotting on the ground to the mushrooms that are eating the ones that are left behind. Just like all these different connections in between and, you know, waking in a sense to that to be able to grow and observe and learn more afterwards um, on your own. So one of the things I got into at a fairly young age was the idea of interpretive services. And that's those are the people that are work at parks and they'll give you a presentation about um, like if you go to a park that has a mound, they'll give you a presentation about Native Americans, um, indigenous mound culture and what was there. And they'll talk to you about it for a half hour, just enough that when you leave there, you want to go learn more about it or look it up on the internet and teach yourself more about it or read more about it in a book. Um, but to inspire and, you know, encouraging to a journey where you're learning more about these things that will benefit the greater ecosystem. Yeah. And, um, going to the food forest adventure was really interesting because the host, uh, the guy who owns the land, his name's Owen. He's a, he's been a friend of mine here in Nashville for a few years yeah. and he's kind of living in his own, I don't want to say it's post-apocalypse because obviously, uh, the world is fine. Although, uh, over the last couple of years, it's been very helpful for him because he can just literally stay on that land and, uh, he's like foraging food. He's got flowing water. He's got all, he's got a whole setup there. Can you tell right. me a little bit about like why that spot is kind of a perfect survivor is uh homestead um wow <laughs> well it's you know he's got great relationships with his neighbors he's got uh you know there's at, at this time you know like the survival aspect you know like i always look at this post apocalypse thing i'll get into that more we'll, i want to come back to that yeah um just from teaching and working with preppers of all different sorts and exploring all different scenarios. Um, the scenario that he's in right now, if you would say the apocalypse has happened, he's got deer running around, he's got clean water. Um, with seasonal cycles, you have things coming and changing throughout the year. Um, I think having that relationship with the neighbors, having community is a, an amazing aspect. If you're lacking in something or if you have an abundance of something, you can get what you need. 
Yeah, you mean um, like through trading or, or bartering with what you have in excess and getting what you need out of it? Yeah, exactly. Cool. I mean, like when we were there that weekend, we found basket loads of a uh, in, a type of enoki mushroom, and it was enough to feed the whole group there, 30-something people. Um, and there was plenty more that, you know, neighbors were able to have some, and... You know that it's kind of brings forth. You know, other people start bringing forth what their abundances are, what they might find on their land that day as well, and you know, it helps that hunter gatherer kind of aspect comes into play there. Yeah, I thought that was kind of the neatest thing, and and probably the core of what this food forest adventure was to me at least was uh, we we would go on these hikes. Uh, you. Uh, Owen and a few other people that really knew their stuff would point out like, hey, this tree provides this food. Here's a plant that you can eat. Check out the fruits growing on this one, like totally edible and it's year round, that kind of thing. Um, And then and then we would actually like forage some of this stuff, bring it back to the lodge and and then incorporate that into the next meal, which was I thought that was so cool. Right. Yeah. I think uh, one of the meals we made there was a soup. Um, or a big stew. I think those are great for large community meals of foraged items. You can put a lot of different things into a soup and add some salt, maybe a, a deer <laughs> leg, you know, to like get some oils into it. And um, I know I, one thing I remember from that weekend, it was mostly vegetarian because our main cook was vegan uh-huh. so it's that's always a different take on things um i know myself i was vegetarian years ago but kind of uh experimented with other meats and you know being more open to eating whatever i felt like instead of putting myself into a disciplinary box of food um, <laughs> gotcha yeah it's it's an interesting journey. I mean, I, I often can almost view a lot of our choices that we have now as just absolutely mind blowing. Um, just being able to choose to be a vegetarian in this world. Yeah. Being able to choose to be paleo, being able to choose these things is such an affluent, like, wow, we get to do that. We can go to a grocery <laughs> store right now and pick out fruits from other side of the world we can get cans of like vegetables from you know any continent of the world right and it's it's shelf stable for for years i mean there's an expiration date on them but right literally you could could open up one of those cans in 20 years and and you'd probably be fine to eat the whole thing yeah most likely if not you i mean you're probably in a situation where it's okay Right. Um, so one of the other really unique things that happened at this food forest adventure was one of the co-hosts uh, actually brought a still, uh, right. which was pretty cool. Uh, now, in this case, we were making tinctures, like uh, taking some berries and some herbs, running that hot water through it. And then um, uh, what am I trying to say? Boiling it down, you know, the whole thing. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm missing the science here, but it's OK. Well, it, uh, d- it, it distilling was, uh... it down. Yeah, it was, uh, I guess, commonly called uh, a floral essence or uh, 
um, hydrosol. Oh, gotcha. That's right. For. That's right. Hydrosols are so it's it's actually extracting the oils out of the plant and it's like just like concentrating it. You can run it through actually several times and get it into a more thicker oil concentrate. Um, oh, right. Yeah, just keep on working it down. Yeah, so we, we were doing spice bush. So we put spice bush twigs, leaves, and berries into it. And are you, I'm not sure if you're familiar with spice berries, but they're a shrub that grows throughout the eastern hardwood forest, you know, from the Great Plains all the way to the coast, um, way south. I've seen them in forests in Georgia. I've seen them all the way up north in Michigan. Um, so they're pretty readily available in some areas. I would say I would see more of them than others, like as a more higher percentage of the shrub layer. They're understory, they grow in the shade. Um, but as a plant itself, it was originally known by the indigenous people as a friendship plant. So when one village would go and meet up with another village, they would make spice bush tea and they called it friendship tea. Nice. Um, so that was that was one significance that we as hosts found bringing that, you know, into a hydrosol that we could all take a sip of and share as a community and make a concentration of that. Um, also on the site there had historical moonshining. So thought, using the still was, yeah, using the still there we felt it was like a fun way to you know, incorporate prior people on the land there and what they had done in the past. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. And now I'm kind of wondering the, if we could make a spice bush moonshine with that same still. That'd be a friendly shine. <laughs> friendshine. <laughs> I love it. Friendshine. I like that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, one of the other cool things, the twigs and leaves have been known for controlling and knocking back candida hmm. are you familiar with candida yeah um so a, a little bit i'm uh more and more all the time right right so it's a it's a yeast that turns into a mushroom and grows out inside of our bodies um so i i could do a quick little story about that oh yeah um, i think it kind of plays in here well it's a story i kind of made up out of realistic kind of things where <laughs> it's, like, it's like the outline of a story basically where so you got these mushrooms that are growing inside of people and through archaeological evidence it landed here about the same time as agriculture began so okay you're talking like 10,000 bc ish yeah and so mushrooms have been proven to have spores that can travel through our stratosphere. They've been shown to be able to travel through space. And 
especially be encapsulated in ice. So there's evidence that a um, comet had passed the Earth and perhaps distributed the spores onto the Earth at that time. And the mushroom, when it gets into us, it can actually change the way that you want to eat food. So things like carrots originally 12,000 years ago were white, fairly bitter, but had that similar carrot taste to them. And okay. over time through agriculture, we increased the sugar contents in a lot of things. And sugar definitely feeds candida. I think that's fairly commonly known. Um, but if you look at what mushrooms grow on, it's dead things. So perhaps the mushrooms that are growing inside of us, they grow best when more cells are dead in us. So it's kind of like you're getting this alien kind of energy, you know, <laughs> this like spore coming in from outer space, right? Yeah. But then it's coming and it's making zombies out of us. And if it can, I mean, what's the best thing to explore the earth with? I mean, the human body is pretty appropriate. You can climb things, you can build things, you can do all kinds of things with the human body. You can explore pretty much most parts of the planet at this point. Sky, underwater. Um, so perhaps some alien activity has come and is using these, you know, it's a mushroom energy and it's using our bodies to explore i mean if it just keeps 10 percent of us alive and 90 percent of us dead mushroom then you know you got basically a zombie walking around well um, you know have you seen the movie the girl with all the gifts i have not oh you you're gonna love this um this is a story it's a zombie story uh obviously post-apocalypse it's actually happening during the apocalypse and um the Instead of it being like a viral infection, like most zombie movies are, this one happens yeah. to be a, um, I just lost it. A can not candida. Come on. Floral. Candida? Yeah. No, like a, like a, there's, there's bacteria, there's viruses and there, a fungal. It's a fungal infection fungal? that turns people into okay. zombies. It actually takes over their brains and they're still yeah. alive. But, uh, but yeah, uh, I think you're going to, you're going to love it. Cool. Yeah. It sounds like a, it's like right up the out my alley here yeah so like for, like like for one, any, one thing i think about too with this like keeping only 10 percent of us alive 90 percent dead you know you think about like in in like a story aspect you know of apocalypse and you know if you're exploring any kind of biblical realm of apocalypse then you have this guy that's supposed to come and um reawaken the dead so it's amazing <laughs> things like spice bush can actually knock the candida back and make a person have a higher percentage human and a less percentage mushroom. And there's other things out there and like other herbs and plants. I mean, sunlight itself helps knock it back. Um, things like cabin fever, you know, they happen to people a lot in February when there's not as much sunlight. Mm -hmm. And it's usually a result of the candida getting to their head and making oh, them what? like just a little more depressed. There's not as much vitamin C in their bodies. Vitamin C knocks it back. They put vitamin C in apple juice in grocery stores and they'll say fortified with vitamin C. But they really put that in there so 
no fungal growth will grow in the <laughs> jug of apple juice, so it has longer shelf life. It's just a preservative? Is that, is that true? <laughs> basically, yeah. What? Yeah, basically. Wow. It's a, you know, it's one of those things in permaculture we call stacking functions. It's you know, gives us the benefit of some extra vitamin C from a shelf-stored item, but it's also giving the thing longer shelf life. That is wild. Huh. Well, I guess it's doing yeah, double the, uh, duty then. The spice bush's name is Lindira benzoin, and I think benzoin is benzoin benzoinate is found in some foods as a preservative. So I don't know I don't know what the correlation there is, but the name, the botanical taxonomical name, kind of has a preservative name in it already. Yeah. Oh wow, that's wild. Yeah. All right, so since since we've uh, delved into the apocalypse now, um, oh, let's I say, yeah, let's say tomorrow the entire world's supply chain falls apart. So we're gonna, we're just gonna we don't know what the apocalypse is, but but there's no food being delivered, uh, there's no new tools being made, there's no gasoline being refined. Uh, what would be your survival strategy from day one? Well, you know, depending on the whole scenario, I mean, with you know, all these factors going into things right now. I really like where I am in this part of the world. I'm in the Midwest and we get rain still and we have great lakes full of fresh water. Uh Um, That's, you know, founding building block of creating food. Um, But I mean, most parts of the world I've been to, like I've been to down in the desert, Sonoran desert and, there's food everywhere. You can learn how to identify plants fairly quickly, um, identify things around you, um, and feel fairly safe and comfortable. Right now, I definitely recommend people to try to learn to identify things, pick up some books, because if the internet does shut down, then you know, you're going to lose that resource of being able to look things up. Um, but yeah, I think there's food everywhere and it's the hardest part is for people to adapt to new foods. There's, I mean, a lot of things I think of apples where I live here in the Midwest, apples are really hard to grow. They used to grow well 150 years ago. So it's still considered this old traditional thing to have apple pie, but (laughs) <laughs> Everybody's getting their apples from Washington. Oh, the funny. People who, the apple orchards where I live are heavily sprayed. There's funguses that try to eat them. There's just so many things going into them. In fact, the uh, old apple orchards often are considered brown fields, you know, contaminated soil, Whoa. Um, heavy metals. Um, so yeah, it's just, I think it's a big thing adapting and changing in the world. And people have done it before. We've always done it in Europe when there was way too many people and too much agriculture, like turning the soil. They got really into the plow in about the early 1400s, late 1300s. They were plowing heavy. And what that did was filled the water with a lot more soot. So people couldn't go down to the river or the creek and harvest salmon anymore. So it wasn't until the 1400s people were going out to the deep sea to eat cod 
People didn't even eat cod 800 years ago. Maybe some people did, of course, but there wasn't a need to go out to the deep sea to catch cod. So it's interesting. People have adapted before to different foods. Right now, it's going to be much more challenging if the supply chain cuts because we're very acclimated to going to the store, getting whatever we want 365 days of the year. Right. Yeah. So it's it sounds like you would be thinking, you know, be ready to adapt and just have as much collected knowledge as you can have. And you're right about that. The Internet thing like, you know, we're all cyborgs at this point and there's an entire yeah. part of our brain that's really dependent on uh, not just electricity, but uh, especially for the World Wide Web to just be up and running. Because uh, we can we can theoretically make our own electricity, right? We can run a generator or that kind of thing, but we can't make right. our own worldwide web. That kind of relies on um, other people making sure their electricity is up and all these cables running everywhere. So, um, yeah, one yeah. The, one of the uh, films that I'm currently watching is Section Eleven, and they're downloading Wikipedia and stuff as fast as they can before it goes down. <laughs> I've been watching that show. I, 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 I'm not caught up, but I'm loving it. I think it's just really good. I really like it too. I like, I, at first I was having a hard time with how they jump around on the timelines, Uh huh. but I'm really liking it now. It's, it's, yeah, it's, it's a fun story. Yeah. And, um, as it keeps going, I love that, you know, it's kind of, it's already in, well, you're right. It does bounce around because you have uh, an entire storyline from the actual apocalypse as it happens. And then there's like early post-apocalypse storylines. And then there's late, like, um, you know, 15, 20, 20 years, years later, yeah. Um, yeah. where where people have kind of figured out how to survive. And now you have these bands of survivors that are working together, trying to recreate what some of them remember from the old world, while the new ones are trying to, um, you know, just just live in the only world that they know. I think it's really fascinating. I'm, I'm loving the show. Right, right. But you're right. In, in During the actual apocalypse, they have a moment where they're like, I'm going to try to download Wikipedia. And what do you get through? <laughs> like D or G or something like that before power yeah. ran out? <laughs> yeah. It's <laughs> and, like uh, internet's down. <laughs> I don't even know how you would do that. I was like, shoot, I, like I'm pretty tech savvy. But no if someone doubt. was like, hey, can no you make idea. a copy of Wikipedia real quick? I'd be like, uh, uh, I can do what? One page at a time? Get some screenshots? Yeah. Maybe copy some, copy and paste like, text? Is it like in some like, memory stack in some building somewhere <laughs> well i'm sure it is yeah i guess if you could get into a server room somewhere that happens to have a copy of wikipedia which there's several copies you know all around the world um i guess that would be one way to get it as a whole yeah. but then what do you do with that what do you do with this server <laughs> right <laughs> yeah not a bad idea though turn it into a, a cooking device or something get <laughs> that's <on> true <laughs> yeah maybe start mining bitcoin with it <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um so um you you mentioned that um uh, being in the midwest would be a good place to get stuck in should an apocalypse happen today uh what well, what area would I, you definitely not pick I, I mean it's challenging because and i'll, I'll say that because i was gonna i said i was gonna come back to this so here we are <laughs> um i've been teaching these permaculture and foraging kind of classes a lot of people that are attracted to those things are into prepping and i've heard a lot of different scenarios of what people think is going to happen 
my my father was a he's retired now but he was an air quality climate scientists so i've been hearing about climate change since i was like a baby yeah um, so i've heard so many things come and go you know you know people calling it global warming people getting upset about that some people saying global warming is going to be great because it'll go back to how it was when the dinosaurs were here and plants will grow crazy <laughs> um some places are going to get cold some places are going to get hot I saw a day a couple years ago where it was 45 degrees in Alaska in Anchorage and it was 26 degrees in Orlando. Oh, wow. So that was pretty mind-blowing just to see how things can switch and change. Right. Um, there's the whole concept, you know, of coastal towns and glacial melt. Like, are they going to be underwater? And I know some of these towns are already having town meetings and city meetings planning for that right like, yeah what are they going to do as the water rises and we're kind of um, seeing that already in florida with the building that collapsed they're saying that uh seawater intrusion had a big part to play in that interesting yeah i haven't read about that that's i want to that's neat oh man it's not neat don't, but it's don't, like yeah don't look that sense. one up that was that's a tragedy yeah. and a half yeah well that's another thing i explore right now too we as humans being linked in with the news, being linked in with the internet, we experience all the emotions of these things that are happening all around the world. Where at another time in the world, most times in the world, we'd be living in a valley with our family and we'd be hearing stories about what was on the other side of the mountain. <laughs> you know That's what true. I mean? Yeah. But now we're like feeling the heartache of every tornado every earthquake every building that falls every hurricane like it's 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 a lot to hold on to and i i do believe we have a lot of capacity and empathy and compassion as humans to hold that but i can see it being very trying for some people oh yeah yeah because um, i mean besides the fact that you know bad hold on one sec that's my phone <laughs> supposed to be on quiet yeah, um, no problem. besides the, like a fairy going by or something yeah that's exactly what it is yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there we go all right fix that let me take a quick note here so i know to get rid of it there we go um so um and now i lost my spot what was i just saying come on we were talking about different ideas different parts of the world oh yeah okay um, emotional impact of feeling the whole world yep that puts me back all right cool yeah because most of the news that we hear is bad news right because if it bleeds it leads uh and so we are kind of always hearing just the worst of the worst out in the world right. especially the further you get away from local news the more it's just the bad news right yeah. well, a lot of times i notice with the news too i don't remember it being this way but i feel like there's a lot of predictive news what do you mean where i remember news being like this happened where now they're saying this might happen like especially with like <laughs> the coronavirus they're like there might be an outbreak next week where in the past it would have been like there's an outbreak last week right if that yeah, makes sense you know what i'm saying like i feel like they're doing a lot of preemptive exploration through news headlines right well it's it's kind of like uh oh i'm gonna get 
in totally di- the, di- the wrong genre here. But, um, you know, when you invest in something, you buy the rumor, sell the news, right? So the news is all about like hyping people up for stuff like, right. you know, uh, hurricanes coming next week. Here's how you can be prepared, that kind of thing. <laughs> and then the hurricane comes, it was like, oh, that was a flop, but they don't say that, you know, it's just like, oh, it was okay. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and really all they're doing is crying wolf over and over and over again. So when the real one happens, that's why people in Florida are like, I'm going to stay in my, uh, in my seaside condo during this hurricane. No problem. Yep. Because the last yep. one was no big deal after they hyped it up. Yeah, it was the one they had recently here near me was in Kentucky, all the tornadoes that came through and Oh yeah. They had a weather warning go out, but you know, it's just like people see a you know, storm warning around here, like, Oh, okay, it's probably fine. But yeah, I don't know. I don't remember how many tornadoes it was, but it was a lot. It was a lot. Yeah. And uh, now that I live in Tornado Alley for the first time in my life, it's it's it was it's been really interesting getting used to this whole new natural disaster that I had never really experienced before. Yeah. And when I yeah. first got to L.A., it was all about earthquakes. And for me, earthquakes were generally kind of fun, um, mostly because I never lived through one where there was any real destruction and no one ever died from it. But now we got these tornadoes that are going right by the house and people are dying left and right. And it's 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 a it's something that you got to grasp, you know, wrap your mind around a little bit. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Um, okay. I still so remember being out in California and people in San Francisco just being totally content that at any moment an earthquake could come and, you know, San Francisco <laughs> is built on sand dunes and yep. they just get swallowed up. Yeah. And, you know, 99% of the time you just, you're just living life. Yep. Yeah. So I, I didn't get an answer from you and I kind of want to go back to this because yeah, let's go back I, to this. We I, I went off to, on a side tangent. There, yeah. We sure did. Yeah. So um, if you happen to be in like, you know, the middle of the desert where there's no water, there's very little, um, very little vegetation, which also means that there's very little like actual animal life. Um, do you think you could survive there? I, I think I could. There's a, uh, you know, it always depends on what resources are accessible there's a you know like ways where you can dig a pit and collect whatever kind of vegetative material you can find put it in the pit cover it with plastic put a rock on top of it with a you know a bowl underneath where the rock is so as the sun hits all that vegetation it's going to evaporate hit the plastic and drip down to where the rock is by gravity and drip into the bowl so you'll be able to access water that way um there's other things there's a a story i always keep in my mind there's there's two this is like one of those like parable or a proverb kind of stories where two men crossed the desert they ran out of food they ran out of water one of them put a few rocks in his mouth the other one didn't the guy that had a couple rocks in his mouth survived and made it to an oasis the other one didn't make it why it's because having those rocks in his mouth caused salivation in his mouth which kept the fluids in his body circulating where the other guys didn't circulate anymore so it dried up got clogged up so there's there's a lot of little things like that that you they're really simple strategies to stay alive in desert situations 
Oh, that's pretty fascinating. I remember as a kid, I would I would put a rock in my mouth, and I forget who. I think it was my grandmother suggested it. She was like, "Oh, oh, if you're thirsty, just put a rock in your mouth." And I did it. <laughs> that's cool. Uh, and it, it would work for a little while. You know, you'd right, salivate right. on the rock. Uh, of course, you know, you suck down a little bit of dirt along along the way. But, <laughs> but I hey, actually tried this. Som- sometimes that's a little extra mineral boost. You know? <laughs> yep. So. Sometimes you just need to get you know some limestone in you. I remember reading about the. Uh, people in concentration camps in world war ii putting uh all kinds of weeds into big pots of water they pick like dandelion leaves and but then they would add a nail into it and as they brewed the pot of soup basically the uh nail would add extra iron into it which helped keep a lot of them alive oh fascinating yeah. Yeah, because there's no multivitamins in a concentration camp. Right. Yeah. I, and actually, some uh, early multivitamin companies that started in the 50s came from um, Jews that had lived in concentration camps and were pr- creating those things. Oh, wow. I didn't think that was going to connect, but well done. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's good. Oh, there's there's other fascinating stories from other hard places to live that I always think of. There's the story of the Inuit man who was lost out in the snow with his two sled dogs, and he took a deuce, like took a poop, and shaped his poop into a knife, let it freeze, and killed one of his dogs, <laughs> ate it. Oh no! It's terrible, terrible. But you know, it, it made made him so he could keep going and um dog's man's best friend so maybe the dog was honored and i'm sure spirit of the dog was honored and was still walking with him but that's it's a, a sad... fascinating story this, this you know like to make a blade out of that yeah that pretty i don't know why you wouldn't make you know find like ice somewhere and make it a chip of ice Seems like there should be some fluffy snow, or I don't yeah. know. Yeah, I, I'm sure he exhausted every option by the time he right. was like, "I'm gonna make a sword out of my poo," <laughs> <laughs> and then and then like he had to sharpen it, right? Or I mean, he had to get some kind of a point on it. Yeah, chip it down somehow. Or, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's interesting though, but yeah, back on the main topic here of no, no, we're know, staying. Like, we're gonna stay on this on this poop knife for a second because okay, okay. <laughs> now because now I'm I'm thinking even more and once now we're talking shit now yes because <laughs> <laughs> once all right let's say you slaughter the dog the knife was good for that now the dog's dead but here comes the next problem now you actually have to like pull a piece of meat off this dog yeah and you gotta and eat you, it raw yeah well you gotta eat it raw. But you wow, gotta cut it. Warm. Are you also cutting it off with this poop knife? Me. Um, I've got questions, Andy. I've got like, I've got like important you, questions. Like, are you concerned that you might get like E. coli poisoning or something from? Well, your that's own one poop? of my concerns. But the other one yeah. is as you're cutting is it into this. Oh yeah, is it yeah, melt? yeah. Because yeah. the dog's warm. You wouldn't wait for it to freeze because then you couldn't cut it at all. Well, maybe so you the get dog's it open warm. enough that you can get a bone off of it that's sharp enough to tear into something oh yeah i guess i guess so but like i've tried to pull the meat off of a chicken without use of a sharp knife and it is not easy a raw chicken yeah yeah raw chicken yeah yeah it's just not easy and uh, apologies to all of my um 
animal loving friends out there. Uh, this is just where we're going with this one. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Well, but that's part of it, right? Because if you got to survive, you're gonna have to do some dirty things. Yeah, I mean, I mean, there's the other story where a guy goes out and didn't do that, and his dog gave him. <laughs> so we can enjoy that story too. Yeah, that one. Yeah, a little vindication for our for our dog lovers out there. Right, right. Oh man, and and where we're at right now, enjoying a conversation, we can enjoy both of those. <laughs> yeah, can can it, uh, we can applaud one man for doing what he had to to survive, and we can applaud the dogs for doing what they had to. Right. Yeah. Yep. And then they probably, you know, they probably had their their quick snack and then just ran, you know, found themselves a nice little cave to curl up in, and they were good. Like the dogs are going to be fine. Right. Right. <laughs> They're furry. Yeah. Yeah. They're made for it. But yeah, like speaking of different climates and different places. And the aspect of looking at what there, what is there, um, seasonally, foods come and go, and if you're adapting yourself to your environment, it's amazing how many things are presenting themselves right when you need it. For example, the white pine, its vitamin C content in the needles are the highest when February is around. So right when that cabin fever kind of concept's kicking in, you can be collecting some white pine needles, eating them, or more easily steeping them in water and drinking the extract of vitamin C and um, sulfur compounds as well, which are really good for you, the MSM. Um, there's things I always think of. I was digging echinacea roots again on um, when the September 11th towers came down. I was out in a field digging echinacea roots. It's when the medicinal properties are the highest. That's also the season late September. Shortly after that in October is when you start seeing flu cases go up. You know, that change oh, of yeah. weather. So there's a lot of things like that, um, you know, like pawpaws, one of my favorite native tree fruits to the area where I'm at in the eastern hardwood forest. It's like a real fatty fruit, almost custardy like, and that helps build your body up for the winter. So then there's other things too. We we live in a – I'll get back to this. Okay. We, we live in a <laughs> – a world where the forests are changing so it's hard to eat a traditional diet we really have to like start adapting to these new forests and i go out in the woods in my back fields here and there is plants from every continent i like to joke that i even have an ice machine on my refrigerator so i even got that continent covered <laughs> antarctica nice. um, but it's you know there's you know, so like this whole seasonal eating, there's tons of greens in the spring. So all different kinds of greens are coming up in the spring. That's a great time for spring cleaning your digestive system from eating more dried fruits and meats throughout the winter. Um, 
more heavy foods in the winter and then you know all of a sudden there's all these greens coming in you're like excited so you're eating them and they help clean you out and open you up and then the fruits come in the summer and they cool you down there's things like purslane they grow in drier areas around here in the sun and they have the highest amount of omega-3s in them they protect your skin from the sun um there's compounds in kale and other greens that protect themselves from the sun and when you eat them you get those into your skin as well um, it's different for everybody every human body has its own way of processing these things and you know there's different allergies and everybody's different so it's you know you got to find your own things there um, yeah gotcha so yeah like what do you think about that it's it's pretty fascinating. Yeah, it, it, it's interesting because like does does nature provide because we need it or do we need it because nature provides? Like, you know, which which one's well, this, helping this, which one there? This comes back to what I'm trying to say is like we are nature. <laughs> I forget that sometimes. You know what I mean? It's like <laughs> yeah. it's not like nature's providing it for us. I mean, it's like it's it's we are nature so it all makes sense we've co-evolved with nature for eons right. i mean we used to go out hanging with our homies and we'd go and catch a mastodon before that <laughs> you know before we even knew how to do that we would go and find one that was already dead and tear it apart and make stuff out of it right you know it's like so many different things um there's a one, one thing one of when I was being choosy about different foods I was eating in my early 20s, I was a, a raw food, like pretty much vegan raw food, but I ate honey and other things. I wasn't too concerned about the vegan label, but I was really into the not eating cooked food. It was kind of like one of my first, like, go a little farther, Andy. Um, one of the things I experienced, I had a lot of other friends and cohorts that were into raw foods, but they were buying a lot of tropical fruit from grocery stores like pineapples and whatnot. I was already foraging and making sure I was eating something local, like in my forest ecosystem around me, wherever I was, every day. And I came to find just even at night or even in my daydreams, I was thinking about the local forest. I was thinking about local history, um, local, the local tribes that had lived in the land where I was, you know, things like that, where my friends were thinking about tropical vacations. So yeah. I found it interesting, you know, like what you're putting into you is the nature. If you're eating stuff that's coming out of a tropical environment, your body thinks it's in a tropical environment. Well, at least part of it does. I mean, you're still breathing <laughs> in the microbes of the local environment, you know, so it's kind of confused a little bit. Yeah. But there's something there. Gotcha. Yeah, that's pretty fascinating. Um, let me let me see something here because um, we've, we've kind of talked about a couple different possibilities, but what would you say is the most likely real world apocalypse that could happen today. And I'm talking about the kind that does wipe out like 90% plus of the population. Wow. Um, I know. And there's a lot of options from nowadays, a, right? Co coming from a biological kind of standpoint, I think the big part is microorganisms. 
microorganisms, like bacteria, like revolting against us, viruses, things of that type of nature. That I mean, there's so many different ones out there. It's fascinating. There was a a so a study done where they did soil like soil probes down in the middle of the ocean a year ago and they found microorganism bacterias that were over a hundred million years old they were still alive dormant they fed them and they started replicating wait why would they feed them i'm just kidding i, I know i know what scientists have to do they yeah, have to they, find they out want to see yeah they want yeah. to see so I mean I'm not I'm not concerned that those particular bacterias and I don't think they were either were going to come out and be something that attacked us but it really exemplifies how resilient these microorganisms are. Yeah. And the more we create I mean humans are a huge species influencing and impacting the ecosystem right now. We create what are known as corridors. There's things like um, trains, you know, they'll go from one city to another. And, you know, when you have a train like that, there's, there's things like the underground in London, a new species of mosquito evolved that lives under there. Oh, son of a bitch. Yeah. So, I mean, it's fascinating. It it apparently doesn't live on human blood. I think I might be mixing that up with another one. Yeah. Let's hope for that. Yeah, the so last... there's, you know, there's a lot of, you know, co-relations, you know. Yeah, the last um, thing we need is things like the vampiric... rat populations. Yeah. Like the rat populations in New York City were struggling during the coronavirus pandemic because there wasn't as much food waste out on the streets from restaurants and all these kinds of things. Um, so that's it's, it's just interesting how there's all these co-relations between that. Um but yeah, I, I think the microorganism world is less understood by us as well. Right. And we usually don't study something like malaria until there's a malaria outbreak. Yeah, you know especially, what I mean? yeah especially us in, here in the first <laughs> world, we've been pretty coddled when it comes to um, diseases. As in, you know, we, we live in a relatively clean place where our food is also kept very clean overall i mean not a taco bell at 3 a.m but you know most of the time it's pretty clean (laughs) but um but yeah that's really interesting because i mean coronavirus kind of you know blindsided a lot of the world and we saw that you know our we only did a 50 percent um response to it as in only 50 percent of the people ish um seemed to care so uh yeah it's pretty interesting because something could worse could come around i don't think it would be as bad right. like i think you know as far as um in written history goes the black plague would probably be about the worst that we've seen um right. and if it came around again today we would have a much better response to it we would be able to do a lot a lot more as far as like preventative and and uh, remedy um but yeah if something worse than that came around and if it was something novel that we just didn't know what to do with um especially if it was bacterial or fungal right. where 
where, you know, you can't just get a vaccine for it. When you're talking about bacteria, you know, we've been living off of antibiotics for the last 70 years, give or take. And, you know, every year we get this news thing that's like antibiotics aren't working anymore. Or there's this new serpa bug that's resistant and that kind of thing. So, yeah. Um, yeah. you know, I think we've got viruses pretty well under control. But, yeah, bacteria well, and fungus. Now we're hearing come... about new variants all the time of viruses. Oh, totally. So, yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, at least they're getting that, weaker. That's one of the, that's one of the biological um concepts are like considered like a nature law of escapism uh-huh. so that's something that we've kind of run out of now is our ability to escape things mm. we've pretty much filled the earth and all the different places that we could go there's you know pretty much most parts of the world have some sort of human impact on them the people living on space stations, they still have to put their poop in a bucket and bring it back <laughs> home. The idea of escaping to Mars is really fascinating to a lot of people, I think. Um, but even so, there's going to be microbials that go with us there. Yeah, that's a really um, interesting one, too. Like the idea of escaping to Mars, because, I mean, the Earth would have to get pretty damn bad for Mars to start looking good. Right. Like I mean, Mar- we can still walk around without a spacesuit here. Right. Yeah. I mean, we're probably, <laughs> I don't I don't know what the real world case is, but it would take a lot for us to be like, mm, Mars is looking really good right now. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't think that that's a real viable uh, solution for anybody anytime. Definitely not in our lifetimes. Right. Um, you know, right. ma- maybe in another thousand years or something when, when, you know, everything is different, but yeah, yeah. there's, there's no escape. Can't even fathom. Right. right. Yeah. I mean, when you, when you look around the universe and you say, all right, how many, how many blue planets are there that have oxygen and water and can sustain life? Like right now we know of one. <laughs> right. So this is it. Um, so, uh, I'm going to kind of throw another, another question at you. What is something that every post-apocalypse movie gets wrong um well one thing i often see in post-apocalyptic films is this idea that if you have like a 10 by 12 hydroponic system that you're gonna be fine because <laughs> you'll be able to like i mean because i've worked with those things before you might be able to create a little bit of food, but to supply some of the food needs that you're seeing in the movie of like how many people are trying to eat off of that three tomato plants and 17 lettuce heads. Right. It's like, it's very interesting. You know, they will be like in a bomb shelter and they'll have all the guns you can fathom, but they'll have like 10 tomato plants and they'll be like, we're going to be fine. Right. So it's, I think there's a lot more needed there. I think places like old abandoned malls could be turned into indoor farms with giant ponds that, you know, you can pull like 50 fish out of every day, you know, then maybe you can start talking about feeding, you know, a hundred people or something, but they, they should look a lot skinnier than they do in some of these movies. Yeah. Hold on one sec. Um, my cat is literally meowing yeah, at my window. Yeah, he's, he's, being a, he's being a dick, so I'm going <laughs> to go let him in real quick. Give me one second. 
Hey survivors, Makeshift here to remind you that the Apocalypse Post is brought to you in no small way by our Patreon supporters. Join the ranks for early access and exclusive content with support levels now named for fancy Fallout-ridden factions like the $2 per creation Drifter or the $7 Wastelander. Knowing you've got my back has helped me dedicate more time to this channel, spreading love of the post-apocalypse, and less time on stupid real-world stuff. Sign up right now at patreon.com slash theapocalypsepost. Cats are the bane of every podcast ever. Um, all right, so I'm I'm really I'm really fascinated that you brought that up because, uh, well, first point, um, a mall, a lot of malls have like that glass uh, ceiling, so they're already kind of greenhouses. Right. And then yeah. second, I was looking this up beforehand because I, I wanted to know. And uh, permaculture.com says that to feed one person for a year, you need five to six acres. And for a family of four, you need about 13. So, yeah, it's, it is pretty funny that, you know, you, you could not farm enough food in like an underground bunker. It just can't be done. Right. right. Um, and I guess there. one movie that kind of got that right but didn't go quite far enough would be um, A Quiet Place. Because they actually had like, you know, they were on a farm. They had, you know, fields growing. But it looks like maybe, you know, an acre or two tops for that family a of four. Quiet Place. Yeah. Have you seen that one? have not I'm gonna check yeah that there, out. there's two installments of it now it is i think uh they kind of created their own genre with it you know it's a monster movie post-apocalyptic but uh they're gonna do good things with it and yeah cool. it's really good it's john krasinski from the office okay cool yeah he's he stars nice. in the first one he wrote and directed both i believe there's a there's one i thought was interesting that they played into was uh i think I can't remember what it's called, but it was about a train driving through the snow. Oh yes, it's a Snowpiercer. Snowpiercer, that's it. I was going to say Storm ch- or Snow Chaser, but <laughs> um, but yeah, you know the people in the back—they're eating these bars made out of uh, wormy-like bugs. Yeah, bur- bugs. Yep. So like, that's I feel is a food of the future because it's amazing how much protein that can be generated with very small amounts of water oh yeah small amounts of water and they'll eat literally anything you could throw whatever scraps you've got anything. you could throw wood in there yeah you could throw dead bodies in there <laughs> any organic material yeah, they'll turn it yeah. into something tasty <laughs> exactly uh, well I, I don't have a whole lot of bugs in my diet except for the ones that happen to be on the strawberries <laughs> i get from the store um i don't yeah, know how tasty yeah, they go. are you know, grasshoppers have to be covered in chocolate for most people to eat them. Same thing with ants. Uh, but yeah, I guess like yeah. some some bugs are supposed to actually taste pretty good. Well, that's that's part of it too. The taste, and you know, that might be even something to do with the adaptability. I'm talking about. Like, I don't know how I'd be able to adapt to being stuck in a train car eating worms the rest of my life. I'd probably look for the nearest poison to take myself out with. <laughs> but. <laughs> But some other scenarios would be more enjoyable for me, I would say. Um, yeah. But there, there is, I, I have noticed, I've acquired a taste for bitter. I think most people only enjoy bitter coffee. Or, or cocktails. Like, or cocktails yeah. with bitters in it, yeah. But like if you eat a bitter green out in the forest, people are like, nah, I don't want that. Um, but I, I've noticed as I've eaten more bitters and wild foods, the sweeter these bitter things actually have tasted for me. Oh, that's interesting. Um, 
the other thing I've compared, like if I eat a chunk of kale leaves or something, shortly after I have a really sweet flavor in my mouth, where if I eat like your typical birthday cake at a kid's birthday party, very shortly after I have the most bitter foul taste in my mouth. That's I don't interesting. Quite understand and yeah, that, no, I agree. Wholeheartedly. You because, want some yeah. water or something else to, you know, <laughs> right. give me a glass of milk. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, the the, uh, the the taste after a glass of milk is uh, not that pleasant either. Right. Yep. So, yeah, it's an interesting aspect there. Yeah. Oh, fun. All right, cool. Um, let's see. We're, we're quickly approaching an hour. Uh, I don't want to take up your whole night, but I've got a couple more questions for you. If you're still okay. if you're still good yeah. to go, yeah. all right. So, here's what I want to know. You're a guy who could literally survive off of foraging. You could do you know mushrooms and and all you know get your greens and you know find bugs if you had to. But I want to know what is your guilty pleasure? Like if you lived on a completely sustaining forest farm, what's the one thing you would still head to Walmart or Kroger for? Huh. Well. I feel there's certain things like that that could be accomplished through greater community. I think one of my guilty pleasures is kombucha. <laughs> I, I could, I've, I've tried to make it, and it turns out a little bit vinegary compared to the kombucha I buy at the grocery store. Oh, gotcha. That's um, interesting. Because so isn't it, is, isn't it like supposed that, to taste a little vinegary? Probably. But yeah, but, I guess you know, the, the commercialized the version of it. Store, like, you know, they're really fun, fuzzy drinks. I pour it into a nice glass and, you know, it's a special little, you know, indulgence. Right. <laughs> uh, That's funny. I, I was not going to, I didn't think that was going to be it. I thought it was going to be something like uh, marshmallows or, or like chocolate bars or something <laughs> like that. But no, you, you no, went with another completely healthy thing. Make- I have learned how to make marshmallows out of the actual marshmallow plant. Really? And, you know, I put a lot of things like that together. That's how they probably, I, I imagine they evolved into what marshmallows are now. Because, like, imagine a tubular root and you cut it up into sections and then you boil it with maple syrup or sugar and you're making a tea, you know, a sweet tea that you're going to drink medicinally. And it's really good for your digestive system, your mucous membranes. And then what's left over in the pot after you drink that is marshmallows. These little tubular roots that puff up and have some of the sweetener soaked into them. So you can go stick them on a stick and cook them on a fire. And wait, so you can take that product and turn it into like the sugary campfire marshmallows we know today? It's very different. But oh, okay. Oh, oh I'm sorry. I would sorry. say so, it's, so. it's 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 a little bit more bitter, you know. But it's uh-huh. what the marshmallows of today kind of originated from, and what's closely still related is the name. Got it. <laughs> and, and the the presentation, you know, that tubular shape that's cut into little sections. Yeah. Gotcha. So uh, wild. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I definitely enjoy other things. Like after three years of doing the raw food thing, my sister had made a bunch of chocolate chip cookies, and that was my first cooked food I ate after three years of not. Oh my gosh, 
I mean, that's a great first food. How did it go? Was your body like okay with it? Um, yeah, I definitely felt it. I remember the first time I ate cheese after that, I felt it go into my blood. I had some cheesy <laughs> ravioli. Really? It just like felt my blood stream just slow down. What? It was, yeah, it was quite an experience. That's wild. Yeah, because I've definitely heard about like vegetarians when they have their first bite of meat after a while. Um, like they'll have to kind of have like just a little bit at first because their stomach just won't take it. Yeah, there's, there's uh, things like like sausage the sage in sausage is you know traditional sausage would have like 40 percent or more sage in it so you know as i transitioned to eating more meats i was also eating a lot more sage because there's compounds in it that help our digestive system digest meats better um and i would even say now i still predominantly more i'm like a jerky eater um dried fish like smoked fish kind of guy i'm not you know cooking myself a steak too often but you know i'll bite into (laughs) something um yeah it's you know i'm open to it it's just like a textural thing sometimes for me gotcha well i've got a kind of an out there question for you since you kind of brought up like digestive issues when we go to wasteland weekend it's in the mojave desert And for most of us, we're going from, you know, our air conditioned houses out to this desert location where you're outdoors 100% of the time, unless you've got a camper with like AC and whatever. Um, And what's what's interesting that happens right away is you kind of lose your appetite. Um, You know, you have to force yourself to drink water because your body almost forgets to tell you that you're thirsty. And after a day or two, you end up with this desert bloat, like you're not able to. And here's the third reference. This episode, you're not able to poop. It like everyone's first poop on site is like this big, like it's like, yay, I pooped today. Well, (laughs) I wasn't going, I wasn't going for a full description, but but yeah, yeah, yeah. So what do you have a remedy for that? Like what, what should we be doing different? Because well, I'm going to guess uh, you might say bring some sage, throw it, throw it I, in there. I mean, that makes sense. Sage does grow in the desert. So, I mean, that could be something available even there. Yeah. Um, another thing I've seen, uh, you can add a little bit of salt to water and it adds a little of an electrolyte to it. And that might oh, yeah. help your water um, absorb better. Yeah, that's definitely been one of the tricks much, is to do that. I mean, of course, if you add too much, then it's like drinking salt ocean water and, you know, you don't absorb <laughs> right. that. That, yeah. that. But that would actually make you poop if you drank some salt, like a cup of salty water. It's uh, basically uh, upstairs colonic as opposed to a downstairs <laughs> one. Okay. And, you know, it's just like a blast of water would come through and move things. Yeah. Um, but greens, I think some greens, There's there's a lot of little tricks like sugary foods like fruits you'll want to eat first and then because they'll kind of like trigger movement if you're eating a bunch of peanut butter or something you know or if you're eating a steak and then you eat a bunch of apples afterwards it could you know cause the bloating like a situation like that because the sugars will be trying to gas out and like move through quickly but they're running into like peanut butter you know Um, so yeah that's that's interesting though with the sun 
the heat out there. Yeah. Um, well, you're just so I, I mean, dehydrated. Aloe, I think that's a big part of aloe vera, it. Aloe vera juice might be a good thing to go in with the first day. Okay. That's real, I know. Like, you actually made me think of something succulent. too, is because meat is such a big part of the culture there that I think I eat like my diet quickly turns into 75% meat. Whereas at home, it's probably like 10 or 20% meat, you know? Gotcha. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so that's probably, we're probably just shocking our bodies every time we get out onto one of these events. Yeah. I think <laughs> that can be a good thing sometimes, you know, it depends on how you go through it all. Right. All right. Cool. That- well, there, there was ahead. one other plant I wanted to mention um, about in the seasonal food thing that I think is quite magical. It's a, uh, it's from Europe, but it grows in the eastern hardwood forest, and a lot of ecologists don't like it because of its invasive properties. It's you know invading our forests. It's right. the garlic mustard or mustard garlic. I've hear people say it both ways. Um, it's a green leafy plant. It's a biannual. It'll produce its seed in the second year. So if you oh, see wow. it growing, you have a year to, you know, clear it out before it seeds and makes thousands <laughs> of itself. Um, but the leaves of it, when you eat them, um, well, the leaf itself has been shown to lower the freezing temperature of water from 32 Fahrenheit down to 28 Fahrenheit. Oh, wow. So... I always like to think about things like that and find those little magic things in the world. Eat that. <laughs> it shows up in the winter. I can harvest it sometimes when it's snowing out, you know, and it's it's out there. Um, so just nibbling something like that, putting it into my body, which, you know, they say what our bodies are like more than 85% water. It makes it me feel like I would be able to hang outside and... <laughs> You know, be the last one to freeze to death. I think we need to do a study on this now. <laughs> yeah, let's experiment on our bodies with that. Yeah, just go um, put ourselves in a frozen river and see who lasts longer. <laughs> <laughs> well, then you, awesome. you can mix in all those things like the um, breath work and whatnot. Right. The Wim, Wim Hof breath work method, I guess, helps you stay warm in cold water longer and warms your body internally from your breathing. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, that guy's he's got some he's got some very interesting skills, doesn't he? Sure. <laughs> it's, it's like, thanks for bringing that. What? Thanks for bringing that to the table. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. All right. Well, um, I do want to wrap things up. Why don't you tell everyone where they can find you, find out more about your work, and and sure. how they can yeah. hire you to show them around. T- their backyards well my most active internet place is wake the farm up on instagram so it's that little at wake the farm up uh, so you can direct connect with me there and see some interesting things i usually do a story there so you might go to it and it doesn't look like i post a lot i just don't do a lot of permanent posts i do keep a continuous story there pretty you know sometimes i take a day or two where i don't um but i'm showing things that i've found in the forest ideas um funny stuff all connected with that and i'm hireable for homestead consultations um it's the idea you know wake the farm up it's a fun phrase but i actually help 
wake farms up. Awesome. Whether and I, you know, I play with the word farm, but I'm definitely into encouraging. You brought up that earlier eco encouragement. I like to encourage people that are doing things ecologically sound and, um, yeah, it's, that's probably the best place to find me. There's awesome. other ways you can look up, wake the farm up and find some other things I've done on there. Sweet. Uh, um, I am in Indiana, so if that's convenient or <laughs> local enough for you, let me know, but I do travel. so. Got it. Oh, very cool. Yeah, to. I know that you made it yeah. down to Tennessee for, for the event down here. Yeah, it's great people there. Fantastic. All right, cool. Well, thank you so much, Andy, for coming on and, and sharing some knowledge with us and teaching us about how to survive in a, a real-world apocalypse. Hey, I'd love to do it again sometime, too. I imagine me and you could talk about this for hours. Oh, my gosh. Could we ever? Keep, yeah. finding, keep finding new aspects to explore. Yeah, awesome. Well, thank you so much, Andy the Elf, for joining me today. And thank you all out there for listening. If you enjoyed today's episode, please make sure to share it with your friends. If you hated it, share it with your enemies, along with a cup full of that first poop from a desert festival. I'll see you next time, survivors. Stay alive. Ending.